Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us today, let me explain where we are as a congregation in our preaching series. We decided when we launched this congregation back in September that the place to start was with the oldest book in the, in, in the New Testament. The oldest, what's probably the, the most ancient surviving account of Jesus' life and teaching. It's a beautiful story, a story told by Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's a story that is designed to answer some very specific questions. Questions like, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And what does Jesus coming require of us? What does he demand? So far, the bulk of the material we've covered, the first seven chapters of this little book, has focused on validating Jesus' claim to bring the kingdom of God into history. The book opens up, chapter 1, with Jesus' first statement to the public, the sort of summary statement of his ministry, and it is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He called on people to turn from other allegiances and to submit to him and to, to believe in the gospel. That's what he called for. Believing in the gospel means trusting in Jesus rather than any other source of security, of identity, any other sovereign. And then Mark launched into story after story meant to show why you can stake that kind of your life on, on this Jesus. He's worth that kind of commitment. So story after story has, has demonstrated his amazing power, his, his teaching authority, uh, him doing things that, that only someone who's divine could do. One of the most remarkable themes, though, that has come up consistently over and over again is the range of responses to Jesus. As we've seen Mark telling us all these things Jesus did, he also tells us all these different groups of people who saw him in action and how they responded in some, some very different ways. One of the most remarkable things, the most consistent uh, things that we've seen, is that some people respond to him well and others respond to him poorly, but it's not usually the people who you would think. They respond in ways that are unexpected. So it's the demons who acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and bow down before him. It's, it's the, the Gentiles, the pagan idol worshipers, who come to him with the kind of need that he must see before he receives you. It's, it's those that you wouldn't expect who respond well to Jesus, where it's his family and the Pharisees who, who knew the law backwards and forwards, the law that was supposed to point forward to Jesus. It's, it's even Jesus' own disciples who are either in total opposition to him or just fail to get the significance of what Jesus represents. That's what we've seen throughout the book so far. And the fact that individuals respond to Jesus in different and unexpected ways raises a crucial question that our text today is meant to answer. Why? Why do some people respond to Jesus in one way and other people respond in another way? Why do some believe... And some, even those who seem best positioned for faith, don't believe. The stories in the, in the teaching sections that we get here in chapter 8, they're meant to show us that faith is a lot like sight. Belief or unbelief in Jesus gets cast in the terms of seeing or not seeing in chapter 8. Similar to chapter 6, a miracle of Jesus, a dramatic display of Jesus' power, sets up just as dramatic unbelief in Jesus. That's the first section of chapter 8. Amazing miracle, 
and yet resilient unbelief right after it. Set, set to show that, 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 that this, un, this unbelief is, is so powerful that no matter what they see, it doesn't shake it. It's not a matter of evidence or seeing more of Jesus. It's, it's something else that, that determines whether one believes or doesn't believe. Then the story takes a dramatic turn where Jesus heals a blind man and all of a sudden Peter, the same Peter who has been struggling to understand who Jesus is all along, now confesses him as Christ. What these, what's this cluster of stories is meant to show is, is one main point. That faith in Jesus requires a certain kind of sight, the ability to see him for what he is. And this kind of sight, the reversal of a blindness that's caused by our sin, comes only as a supernatural gift of God. That's the main point. This kind of sight, the kind of sight that responds to Jesus in a trusting, resting faith, requires a supernatural gift of God. So the two things, the two, the two points that we'll make today to, to get there is that first we see that spiritual seeing is not automatic. That's the first two stories. Jesus' amazing miracle and resilient unbelief. Spiritual seeing is not automatic. And then we see that faith comes out of gift of God. That's where we're headed today. That's where we're headed today. First, let's read the passage together. Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 8? And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we've got some Bibles at the end of each aisle here at the center that we'd love for you to, to use today and to take home with you if you don't have one. Just uh, flag somebody down and they'll pass one down to you. Here we go. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 30. This is God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, 
Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, spiritual seeing is not automatic. In chapter 6, we considered one of the most familiar stories about Jesus. A story that's really similar to the one we've just read now. That story was the the feeding of the 5,000. And what we saw in chapter 6 is Mark used that story of dramatic power to set up the fact that the disciples still didn't really believe. They continued to misunderstand the point of, of Jesus' amazing power. He, he, the way he put it, they didn't understand about the loaves. Chapter 8 begins with a very similar story told here by Mark for exactly the same purpose, to set up an amazing account of unbelief in the face of what Jesus has done. Jesus' remarkable display of power sets up the fact that the Pharisees and even Jesus' own disciples still don't fully grasp who he is. So, here's the, here's the first story, the story of his power. Jesus has been teaching huge crowds somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, and he sees that they have nothing to eat, just like he did in chapter 6 with the 5,000. Seeing that they have nothing to eat, he's moved with compassion for them. Verses 2 and 3 capture this well. I have compassion on the crowd, Jesus said, because they've been with me now for three days and, and have nothing to eat. He can't send them away hungry because he won't make it home. So he decides he's going to feed them. His disciples, of course, still not quite understanding what's going on. The disciples' question to Jesus is both reasonable and, and at the same time it's remarkably slow-witted given what we've already seen, given what they have already seen Jesus do. They say, they say to him in, in verse... Four, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I mean, almost better translation would be, who can feed these people? Who is, who's there who can feed this number of people out here with this few resources? The answer, of course, is, is no one could. No human could, at least. Jesus asked him, what have you got? What have you got? In this case, it's seven loaves and a few small fish. He seats the crowd. He blesses the food. And then he proceeds to fill them till everybody eats. Mark tells us they all ate and were satisfied. They had enough. This was like after Thanksgiving dinner. They had all that they needed, so much that they even took up seven baskets full. Who can pull this off? Well, only, only Jesus, the Son of God, the same one whose voice the waves and the winds heard and fell silent, the same one who with a word could, could raise the dead and cast out a legion of demons. This is the same Jesus we've been seeing throughout Mark so far, a Jesus with unmatched power who shows himself to be divine through the things that he does. Jesus' power and authority are unmatched and unlimited. 
So, perhaps, given that portrait of Jesus, we've seen here in this, in this story and all three marks so far, we're tempted to think that faith comes to those who see Jesus do amazing things. When they see him do superhero kind of stuff, they believe in him. That's, it's a one-to-one thing. It's a cause and effect thing. That's maybe what we're tempted to think. I've certainly thought that I would have believed in him if I had seen those kinds of things. And I've wished that I could see them. But the next exchanges show that if that's what we're thinking, we are dead wrong. The next exchanges with the Pharisees and the disciples show that spiritual sight is not the same thing as physical sight. Sight with the eyes. Sight with the eyes. Even to some extent, intellectual sight with the mind. They give us data. But then we have to interpret that data. We have to respond to it. We have to decide what we're going to do with it. That's spiritual sight. Faith is a decision to rest on what the eyes have seen. And it requires more than any certain amount of evidence. Now, Mark, Mark gives us this point first with the Pharisees in verses 11 through 13. It's a pretty short exchange, but we know enough about the Pharisees at this point to know where they were coming from. They come up to Jesus as soon as he lands from his, his boat and they, they challenge him. They want a sign. They want him to prove himself. Now, they're not necessarily asking for another miracle. They'd already seen miracles. The Pharisees came to Jesus in chapter 3 saying, we know you've got power. We think it's power from the devil. That's where you're getting your power. You cast out the, you cast out the demons by the power of Beelzebub. You remember that passage in, in chapter 3? They knew that he could do miracles. They doubted where the miracles were coming from. What they're asking for here is proof. What they want is for Jesus to prove that he's got power from God rather than power from the forces of evil. They want God to endorse him somehow. They ask for a sign from heaven. Jesus is not going there. Mark tells us that Jesus is deeply grieved and refuses to give them a sign. What, honestly, what good would it do at this point? Given the condition of their hearts the hardness that they have shown, given that they are the kind of soil Jesus has described back uh, in, in an earlier parable, or the, the, the hard soil that the seed of the gospel just sort of bounces off of and gets snatched away, what good would another sign do? They are spiritually blind. They are wearing deeply tinted lenses that cover everything that they see of Jesus, and one more sign wouldn't change that. At this point, we're still not that blown away. We expect the Pharisees to respond to him in this way. They've been opposed to him from from the beginning. What is surprising is that the disciples continue to struggle to come to grips with who Jesus is, even after all they've seen. So right after this exchange with the Pharisees, Jesus leaves dramatically. tells us that he, he left them, using a word that is very punchy, like he just left almost in protest and got back in his boat and sailed away. And then we're told that they forget to bring bread along. Jesus immediately warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees. And that reminds them that they have it. It triggers in their minds that they didn't have bread and it sets them to talking. Jesus meant to say, don't let what colors the Pharisees color you as well. Don't let that leaven of unbelief, of, of self-reliance as opposed to trust on Jesus, don't let that permeate you. But the exchange that comes after this shows that it's already alive and well in their body. The leaven of the Pharisees is already permeating the disciples themselves. He mentions leaven. It triggers their minds. Bread. What are we going to eat on this ship journey? And they realize 
verse 16 says, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. It's really much more sharp than that. They're quarreling with each other. Whose fault is it? Who was it that was supposed to bring the bread? It was Peter's fault. No, no, it was Andrew's fault. He was the one who said he was going to grab some bread. And what are we going to do? We're in this boat, and we're sailing across the other side, and we have nothing to eat. It's remarkable, really. They're bickering at some level, at some level out of a fear over their lack of bread, a worry over what they'd eat. And get, remember, they had just seen Jesus feed 4,000 people out of somebody's lunchbox. And they're worried that the 13 of them might miss dinner. They're still fundamentally self-reliant. And when their resources have run dry, they turn to fear rather than to trust in the one whose resources never run dry. They have seen Jesus do amazing things. They still aren't seeing with the eyes of faith. What they have seen has not led them to trust. They're still fundamentally colored by the leaven of the Pharisees, which is a self-reliance, an ability to supply for oneself the things that make, that, that make for a, a life that is pleasing to God, to supply for oneself the things that are needed for survival. They are still permeated by the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus exposes this in them with a series of penetrating questions. Look at these, at the questions that he asks them. I, I, I love the way that they build on each other. He says, verse 17 is where it starts. Why, why are you discussing that you have no bread? Seriously? After I fed 5,000 people and then, then 4,000 people, you're still discussing that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened like the hearts of the Pharisees? Having eyes, this is where he turns to sight. Having eyes, do you not see the things that I've done? Then he gets specific. When I broke the, the loaves for the 5,000 people, how many baskets full of broken pieces did, I, did, did you pick up? You picked up 12 baskets after I fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. And then he just, just salt in the wounds, rubs it in. And, and, and when, I, when, I, when I had seven loaves for 4,000 people, like yesterday, how many baskets full did you take up? Well, he took up seven. Do you not yet understand? I think in this exchange with the disciples, we get some important insight into what it is that makes faith so difficult. What it is that makes, that, that makes for a barrier to truly resting in Jesus. It's, I think the key is in this, this leaven of the Pharisees. What is it that defined their outlook? It was a, it was a, a self-reliance. And this is the opposite of faith. All along, Jesus has been calling people to repent. That means to turn away from all of their sources of, of meaning, of security, of, of standards for living, and to believe the gospel, to turn to him and rest on him, to stake your life on the fact that what he says is true, that he is who he says he is, to let that be enough for you. That's what he's been calling for all along. To rest on the truth that Jesus is the Christ in whom there's peace with God. Now... Mark has told us many amazing stories to show us that Jesus is worth this kind of trust. But here's the key. Here's the key that we see in this exchange with the disciples. Recognizing that Jesus has power and resting in his power are two very different things. The demons, from, from the beginning of this story till, till now, the demons have recognized his power. That's why they come running up to him and, and bowing down. That's why, that, that's why in that weird exchange where he casts them into the pigs, they're, they're sort of begging for their lives. They know they have nothing on this man. The demons recognize his power, but they don't trust in him. 
The Pharisees recognized his power, but they explained it away as evil. The disciples have recognized his power enough to follow him, enough to remark, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They know that there's something remarkably powerful here. But the faith that Jesus wants to see isn't just a recognition of what he's done. It's an acknowledgement that what he's done is is enough reason to trust in him. It's a decision to rest on him. And therefore, the the, the chief barrier that we have to rest on Jesus is is a self-reliance that won't put off the weight that we're carrying ourselves onto Jesus and let him carry it for us. For the Pharisees, this looked like a scrupulous attention to the details of their traditions. They trusted their lives to their obedience. For the disciples, apparently, despite whatever they'd seen Jesus do, they were still trusting in their own ability to provide. That was where they they, they would be okay as long as they could provide for themselves. They continued to trust in themselves because they had forgotten what Jesus had done or in the moment they didn't consider him and his provision as trustworthy. They weren't sure he would do it again. They didn't know that they could continue to trust in the things that they had seen him do. And this, this kind of self-reliance that's the opposite of faith, it shows itself in many different forms in our own lives, but it does. It's in all of us. I've often struggled with an intellectual kind of self-reliance. I kind of, I kind of figured that if, if I could prove something to myself, then I could, be, I could rest in it. If I could just know that God existed because of these proofs that I in my mind am able to understand, then I could, I could be willing to live life as if he exists. You see how, how self-reliant that is? That ultimately the, the, the true test is whether I can think it out, whether I can reason or, or prove or argue well enough. I've, I've relied on intellect in the same way that the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were only going to accept that this evidence they had already seen meant what Jesus said it did, that he's the Christ, if they could see one more step of proof. If he could, they, they wanted to test him. They wanted extra proof, right? They came to him for a sign. Ultimately, it's not more evidence that's going to t- turn the tail. There's evidence out there. It's useful. We should, we should claim it and put it into the service of, of faith. But if, 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 if intellectual or scientific evidence or whatever else is made the, the standard for faith, it's been made into an idol that only those smart enough to figure it out can, can truly believe. It becomes then a source of boasting. I am a Christian because I have got it. Sometimes you hear people say, I just don't understand how anybody couldn't believe. Well, that's, that's not really a good thing to say. It's not about them being stupid and us being smart enough to have figured out that this makes sense. It's, it's ultimately about something that comes from outside of us. That's what we're about to see. Maybe for you, it's less an intellectual kind of self-reliance than, than, than a self-reliance that shows itself in fear. I think that's probably the most pervasive sign that we still trust in ourselves. All of our fear or anxiety is ultimately rooted in self-reliance because it's rooted in the fact that we're, sh- we're not sure that we're in control. And if we're not in control, then nothing is secure, right? That's why we're afraid is when we, we're worried that something out there could happen to us that we can't stop. That could be family-related. It could be job-related. It could be physical. It, it could be anything. But the, the fear is that something outside of us can, can affect us in a way that we can't control. And that fear shows that we ultimately feel good or, or bad based on whether or not we're in control. We are relying on ourselves to, to be the puppet master in our lives. Faith is a trust that, come what may, Jesus is in control. He can bear the weight both for our 
our, our, our standing before God and for, for our identity as persons. He can, he can carry that weight because He is strong enough and loving enough to do that. Faith is about trusting in Him, choosing to live as if He is who He says He is. There's a good reason that Jesus cast the disciples' unbelief and failure to remember in terms of sight and senses. We all see the world through lenses that interpret what we see for us, right? That those lenses are shaped by our parents, by our upbringing, by you know, the kinds of things we like to do, our hobbies, our interests. We all have these glasses on that we, through, through which we see everything. More evidence to look at through those glasses is not the answer for us if we're going to get over the hurdle of faith. What we need is a new set of eyes to see rightly. So if even the disciples could not overcome their own spiritual blindness in spite of everything that they'd seen, the question that we're left with at the end of, Jesus, of this yet another miracle followed by yet another example of unbelief, the question that we're left with hanging out there is, what in the world do we have to do if we're to see Jesus for who he is? What has to happen to us if we're to have any hope of avoiding the failure of the Pharisees and the disciples? And the answer is that faith comes as a gift from God. Spiritual sight, faith, is not automatic. It's not a matter of seeing things with these eyes. And then the the, the effect is that we believe. Faith is a gift of God. That's the point in the next couple of stories. Beginning in verse 22, carrying on through verse 30. It's in these two stories that Mark's narrative that he's been building from the very beginning takes a sharp turn. Like I said, up until now... Mostly been seeing things about who Jesus is as a, as, a sort of, uh, as a sort of testimony to the fact that he's worth trusting in. Now we're about to, to shift towards more on what Jesus came to do as he gets closer and closer to his death as the point of his coming. The other shift is that people begin to see for the first time. His disciples in particular, those who have been with him, walking with him, seeing all these things, their eyes begin to come open. One of the techniques that we've seen Mark use over and over is to tell a story that illustrates the theological point that he's making. He doesn't always tease it out. He's not always really preachy about it, right? He doesn't always make it really explicit that this is what I'm trying to tell you through this story. He makes those points by keeping stories together that are on similar themes. And when you, when you, when you read them in context with each other, you know that's where he's going. Here, that's what he does. He starts out with a story of a blind man, physically blind, who Jesus heals. He opens his eyes. And then he tells us this dramatic story where Peter finally realizes who Jesus is. He finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. What happened between these verses where Peter has eyes and doesn't see and ears and doesn't hear and Peter making this dramatic confession of the Christ? What happens in between? The same thing that Jesus did for this man who was physically blind. Jesus has to give you eyes to see. That's the point of these next two stories. Jesus comes to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Reminds me of that, of that account where, where the, the men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus and cut through the roof and lower him down and beg Jesus to heal him. Here, here's more group of friends coming to, to beg Jesus to, to heal their blind friend. The details of the story are pretty strange. We're going to get into these a little bit more next week. Because there's some carryover with the text that we're going to approach next week in chapter, the end of chapter 8 and early in chapter 9. So I won't say too much here, but 
These details, even though they're strange, they do have a point. Jesus doesn't heal him instantly. We've seen him do that with so many other people. He'll just speak a word or, or just lay his hand on someone and they're, they're healed completely right then and there. Jesus takes this guy away, aside from the crowd. He spits on his eyes and then lays his hands on him. And the man doesn't see, at least not clearly. He asks him, what, what do you see? He says he sees men, he thinks... They look like trees walking around. That's so random, but that, that's where this guy was. He has partial sight, still really fuzzy. He sees things moving. They're tall. They look like men, but they also look like trees moving around. Then Jesus lays his hand on him a second time, and he's healed completely. That's the story. That's as much as Mark says about it. Then Mark resumes the same conversation with the disciples about his identity. I wouldn't say, you know, we've seen Mark do this thing we call the Mark and Sandwich a lot, where he'll start one story, then insert another full story in the middle to sort of heighten the tension, and then he finishes the story and comes back to it. That's not exactly what he's doing here, but it's similar. He started with this conversation that's really about his identity. You're complaining about bread? You still don't trust me? You still don't see and understand? Then you have a little break. You have the blind man who's healed. Then he, he comes back and immediately starts in on this conversation about who he is again. He says, who, who do people say that I am? Always, when Mark does that technique, it's the story in the middle that has the key to interpreting the meaning of both stories. The middle story shows what the, the, the bracketed story is, is there to communicate. In this case, the middle story is Jesus giving sight to a blind man. And now, in this story that he relates about Peter's confession, we see, we see the same thing. So, he comes to them, who do people say that I am? Just curious, let's poll the audience. He says, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're one of the prophets. Similar lineup that, that we had, we'd heard earlier when Herod was wondering who he was. Jesus isn't content to leave it there, though. Jesus is not content to leave these various theories on the table. He presses them instead for a, a personal confession. What he wants is a decision from them. Who do you say that I am? It reminded me of, of my time in graduate school and in in, in, in coursework where we'd sit around in these seminars and we would, we would debate all of these theories that other people had written about. Part of being a good graduate student is knowing what's already out there, mastering these theories of explaining historical trends and movements or whatever. And you can get pretty good at that. If you, read it, if you spend enough time reading it, you know what's out there. You know what's said, and you can, you can debate people on the finer points. But one of the signs of your maturity as you move through the graduate program is that eventually you've got to start making your own arguments. You've got to start doing your own research into these questions that other people are asking and answering. And you've got to come down off that fence onto a particular position that you are going to defend. That's exactly what Jesus is asking them for here. He's not asking them simply, what are the theories about who I am out there? Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the good confession. Just a few verses before, he had, no, he had these eyes, but he, he didn't see. Now he's confessing Jesus as the Christ. This is the turning point for Mark's gospel. All that he's told us so far is meant to lead us as readers to Peter's point of confession. After all we've seen of Jesus, what we're supposed to say at this point is that you are the Christ. Who is Jesus? 
the first half of the book has asked. This, this man who teaches with authority, who commands the waves and the winds and the demons and even death with the word. Peter's answer is Mark's answer, and it should be our answer. But how? That's the key question. Where did this come from in him? How did the Peter who didn't see before see now? Mark, true to form, doesn't say a whole lot about it. He doesn't often give us much commentary. But Matthew tells the exact same story in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew, Jesus, Matthew records some of Jesus' words to Peter after his confession. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, who so recently failed to see, sees now because God has opened his eyes, just as surely as Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man. There's still much Peter has to learn. We're going to see that starting next week. He sees in part and not in full, like the blind man who saw men but looked like trees walking around. Peter sees that he's the Christ, but not that he has to suffer and die, and that that's what discipleship is going to mean. The rest of the book is going to be about him coming to grips with that identity. But he does see. He does see. And his faith, his sight, comes as a gift from God. Mark wants us to act on what we've seen of Jesus and to rest on him, just like Peter has. But apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit, we are always going to remain just as blind as Peter and the disciples were. Their example shows us that it's not about seeing more. It's not like we need to sit on the fence and wait on Jesus to prove himself to us yet again. He doesn't need to deliver us from any new thing that might come up in our lives. We don't need to be praying prayers like, if you could just get me that job, I'll know you're real and I'll believe in you. That is not true. That is not true. And history has proven that time and again. What we need is not more evidence. We need the eyes to see the significance of what's already in front of us. We need to see it with the eyes of faith that lead us to trust in whom and in what we've seen. What we need is an awakened spiritual sense. The man who's influenced me more than any other on this point in in seeing the necessity of conversion as as a new set of senses is a a guy from the 18th century named Jonathan Edwards. He wrote about this in a couple of really amazing uh, texts. One, a sermon called The Divine and Supernatural Light, and, and in a book called The Religious Affections. What he described as what had to happen in conversion is it's just like it's just like the senses of taste, physical taste and sight and, and, and hearing. What you need is another sense, a sixth sense that you can use to perceive the things of God as they are, to see the beauty that is God's being and his creation, to see the things that he has put all around us in the way that they're meant to be seen. What we need is the impartation of a new spiritual sense to perceive things differently. This is exactly what Ephesians 2 describes. Ephesians 2 starts for Paul with with our death in sin. He says we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, just like everyone else. What is going to make a person who's dead all of a sudden alive and able to see? The only thing, they certainly can't act. They're dead. They have no ability to act. They cost themselves that through their sin. The only thing that's going to make them alive to God in Christ Jesus is is the mercy of God shed in their hearts. That's where Paul goes next in Ephesians 2. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, has, has made us alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians 2. 
Faith, he goes on to say, faith is a gift from God that no one should boast. Faith, if we're going to have it, is going to come from God. So, obviously, I don't have a simple three-step process for you today to take the message of Mark chapter 8 and go put it into your lives. Ultimately, for Mark 8 to really become true for you, God has to do it. What you need is something you can't ultimately provide for yourself. And if I were you, I'd be tempted to ask, but if this just makes us passive, does this mean we just sort of sit around and, and wait for God to open our eyes? And the answer to that is, is certainly no. Because even though God must act if we're to truly see him, he has given us things that he's promised will be means of grace for us. That through those things that he has promised to honor and work through, that spiritual sight will come. These are the things that he acts through. It looks like prayer, even when, when our, our hearts seem dried up, even when it seems like it's just routine and we don't have any feeling for it. We're told that prayer is pleasing to God, that, 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 that it expresses a faith that he can give us something we can't give to ourselves. That's what prayer is. So we pray. It looks like spending time in God's word, trusting that he's promised he'll honor it, that it won't return void to him, and that if we are in it, it will speak to us. Even if it doesn't speak to us every time, even if it takes resilience to keep coming back, even when we're dry and we don't have time for it. If we keep coming, God honors that. We're told that he honors the preaching of his word. That's why Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word faithfully in season and out of season, no matter whether people want it or not, don't give them things that tickle their ears. Preach the word to them because that's the only thing that can change them. We're told that if, if you want these spiritual eyes, the eyes of faith, you need to hear the word of God open to you. And we know that communion is something Jesus established as a, as a regular practice for the church that is meant to remind us of the glories of God's grace, to knowing that we're prone to wander in our minds, just like the people of Israel always were forgetting and therefore had this whole, these whole system of meals and, 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 and rituals that they went through. Just like them, we're prone to forget. We need a monthly or weekly or however often you do it. We need a, we need a, rem, a reminder of the things that, that Christ has done for us. What it looks like from our perspective, even though faith is a gift, even though behind the scenes God has to do it, what it looks like from our perspective is not sitting around and waiting. It looks like an active decision to believe in Jesus. An active decision to trust him and to choose to live life with a conviction that he is who he claims to be. It means fighting our fear with memory. With a heart that rests on the fact that he is powerful and he's loving. And a pledge that since God didn't spare his own son, he's not going to hold back anything that we need. It means fighting fear with that kind of memory. We have to take action like Peter did. What this calls for from us is to get off the fence, to be no longer content with knowing a range of possible or plausible responses to Jesus and to commit to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. That's the call of Mark 8. Will you pray with me? We ask you for eyes to see we know that we don't see clearly at all times because we are sinful. Because we choose to see other things as more vivid and real than the promises of the gospel. We know that. We know that 
we are to blame and not you. And so we come to you claiming the grace that's ours in Christ Jesus and asking for a supernatural insight into the beauty that is your being and nature. We ask for hearts that will respond with joy and relish at the sight of who you are and of what you've done for us in Jesus. We ask, as we do every week, for something that's supernatural and that only you can do. We ask that you would help us to see, O Lord, in the name of and for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen.